The Rational Apprentice podcast is linear rather than topical and should be listened to in order starting with episode one. Skipping episodes or listening out of order will prevent you from fully understanding the concepts being presented and may cause you to miss or misconstrue vital proofs. That being said, welcome to the Rational Apprentice podcast. What is a society? Now, I've asked this question of people before, and as you can well imagine, each time I've asked, I've received different answers. But the one characteristic common to most of the answers is that at the core, a society comprises people who either come together or live together. But that's vague, as definitions about our societal structure so often are. What people? Why do they come together? What's the point? Well, that part was generally left out of the definition, so let's hone the definition of society. After all, our goal here at The Rational Apprentice is to examine observable and corroborable reality. That definition will allow us to design a social structure that is based upon those observations. But the caveat to our goal is that we must build a structure that requires no force or violence in its construction or its process. This means that we need to design a societal structure that is in keeping with man's true and realistic nature, which I'll elaborate on in a moment. Not a subjective view of what we would like human nature to be, but based upon that which human nature actually is. Now, why? Well, throughout history, we've seen social structures come and go. They begin and they rise and they grow and they become strong and maintain that strength for a time. Then they start to decline and eventually collapse altogether, destroying property in the process, in lives, ideas, and tangible goods. In fact, every social structure throughout history has eventually fallen. Has it not? Is this not true? Is this not observable? Is that not exactly what we're seeing happen to our society right now? And in every case, Was it a smooth decline, or was it terrible and devastating to everyone involved? There is, in fact, only one characteristic that is and has been common to each and every social structure in history, and that is that they all, without exception, fit the Gibbons expression, the decline and fall of the blank. Edward Gibbon was the author of the treatise, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But again, it's not just the Roman Empire that rose and fell. This has happened to every single one of them, without fail. Now, why is this? Why has every societal structure fallen? Is that not an important question for us to ask? For example, if you're trying to get from here to the moon, And each time you launch your test rocket, something happens that results in a monumental explosion at just about 10,000 meters. Well, you scratch your tin. That's odd now, isn't it? Well, now, would it be a better idea to ask, gee, 10,000 meters, I wonder what could be causing this? What is it about 10,000 meters that could be causing this to happen? Let's do a series of experiments to try to isolate the problem. Or... Perhaps we could simply come to the conclusion that, well, we just didn't do it right. Let's just build another one and see how it goes. 
Well, of course, building another one without first isolating the cause of the explosions will probably result in exactly what always happens at 10,000 meters. Kaboom, right? So when faced with a dilemma, a problem, we must first isolate the root cause or causes and solve those. Otherwise, we're simply dealing with symptoms and nothing will be solved ever. Now, the root causes as to why every societal structure in the past has fallen is a subject that we'll discuss in future episodes. Right now, it's vital that we gain an understanding of what it is that we're even examining, and that requires us to construct our foundation. So we return to my initial query. What is a society? A society is a group of individuals who come together for a singular purpose, the exchange of property. Remember, property consists of primordial property, life itself, primary property, the intangible derivatives, ideas, actions, beliefs, innovations. And finally, there's secondary property, the tangible derivatives, cars, houses, books, forks, microwave ovens. So in a society, individuals come together to exchange property. They exchange ideas and innovations. You may buy a home improvement magazine or a toaster or a mobile phone. Individuals exchange friendships. They exchange information. Hey, that sounds like a great cocktail. What's the recipe? I'll make us both one. Hey, Becky, if you take my shift on Wednesday, I'll work yours this weekend and you can have the whole weekend off. Right? Someone may have a really good idea, primary property, for which you exchange your secondary property, your money. The magazine, a teacher's services, a plumber's services. These are all examples of cross-type property exchanges, secondary property in exchange for primary property. That makes sense? Now, these are all exchanges that we see every day, exchanges of property. After all, is there anything other than property that is or can be exchanged? No, we see exchanges of property because property is the only thing that can be exchanged. Remember, property does not exist in nature. There are no literature or music trees and there are no refrigerator trees. There's no second law of thermodynamics tree. And there's no wheel rotation and alignment tree. All of these are derivatives of someone's life. In other words, property. So a society is made up of individuals who come together for the sole purpose of exchanging property. But a society in and of itself is not a thinking entity. A society cannot think per se. A society cannot act, per se. Only the individuals within it can think and act. A society cannot innovate, or build, or believe, or love, or transform resources into property, or even own property. A society cannot do any of these things. Only individuals can do them. So if we're going to structure a society, and we're going to do it properly by making it a scientific endeavor, and basing our structure on observable and corroborable reality, we'll need to base our science on postulates. And according to Occam's razor, we should base it on as few postulates as is absolutely necessary. But what are these postulates? And what tools can we use to make absolutely sure that these postulates are true? Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application 
of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind of a murder case of the week. The first stage of the scientific method is observation. We make observations about our universe in order to derive a simplified generalization that we can then test for truth. So if we're trying to determine the true nature of man, we make observations of individuals by taking random samplings of as many people as is possible. We've got almost 8 billion people on the planet at the moment, so observing all of them would be an overly difficult task, and neither would it be necessary. But by taking random samplings of as many diverse groups of individuals as possible, we can then make generalizations or hypotheses about these smaller groups to see if they apply to all individuals, to see if we can discover a characteristic that is true of everyone. Now, this discovery need not be groundbreaking. Okay? You're not going to fall off your chair when you hear what it is. But there are two things which it must be. First, it must be true with a 100% record of zero failures. Second, it must apply to all individuals without exception. Again, that's a 100% record of zero people to whom this does not apply. If there's even one case out of a quadrillion in which it is not true, or that one person out of all people to whom this does not apply, it cannot be used as a postulate, and we'll have to scrap it and start again. And through this process, we find that all individuals exhibit a common trait, a common goal, if you will, and that is that all individuals live in the pursuit of something called happiness. All right, what is happiness? Well, in volitional science, happiness is defined as the algebraic sum of subjective goods and subjective bads. All right, that sounds complicated. So what does that mean? Well, first off, happiness is a relative term, right? And good and bad, which we'll get into in a second, they're also relative terms, right? What I consider to be Good may be something you consider bad. We've all heard the phrase, one man's garbage is another man's treasure. So what does the algebraic sum of subjective goods and subjective bads mean? It means that each of us determines our level of subjective happiness based upon the sum of our experiences in the past, in the present, and what we subjectively expect to happen in our future. But what is a good well, a good is any condition, event, action, situation, or acquisition that we prefer. Again, a highly relative, subjective term. And a bad is simply the opposite of a good. Any condition, action, uh, event, situation, acquisition that we do not prefer. Now, of course, our happiness changes day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, and is completely different for each one of us. Now, say, for example, you work for a company. You start close to the bottom, and through hard work and determination and skill, you work your way up, learning and expanding your abilities and your value as you go. Now, all the skills 
you gained and all the challenges you overcame, they give you a sense of accomplishment and confidence. And now you're at a high level in the company and you're well paid for it. Now, these are all goods, but there's a problem. The company is, well, it's not all that large and there are no more skills to gain or challenges to overcome. Essentially, there's no more up to go without taking a position that simply doesn't interest you. So if you're going to continue to gain skills and overcome more challenges, a change is going to have to be made. But for many people, change is not comfortable. That's a bad. Further, you like the people at this company. You know how they work. You know their strengths and their weaknesses. So learning all of that over again for an entire set of new people, that seems daunting to say the least. That's another bad. In the short term, marketing yourself, honing your resume, going on interviews, that's all filled with unknowns and it's time consuming. And well, it's just overall, yuck, more bad. So what we have here is a scenario in which all of those good accomplishments, all of those good achievements, even the good salary, is being outweighed by the perceived bad of having to move on in your career. And you wind up with a net negative. You wind up unhappy. In the longer term, you'll end up with a net positive. You'll end up happy. But right now, we're unhappy. But again, this is all relative. Another person might find this predicament the perfect place to be. I make good money. I'm at the top of my game. No changes necessary. These are all goods. Okay? So happiness is a relative, a subjective concept, and good or bad are relative subjective concepts too. And when we seek happiness, we are seeking that which we prefer, or we are avoiding that which we do not prefer. Another aspect of the pursuit of happiness, which is common to all individuals, is that there is no maximum to happiness. There is never a point at which we say to ourselves, yep, I'm perfectly happy. I've achieved or experienced or done absolutely everything that there is to do. I'm, I'm finished. Is this not true? Right? Take the guy who loves to play video games on his computer. And not those casual games either. The hardcore simulators that require massive sound and video cards that generate enough heat to boil water. And that's all he wants. Man, if I could only build a gaming rig that would run Super Mega Space Sim Whatever 12 at full quality, that would be awesome. That's what I want. And so he works and he saves his money and finally he gets enough money to do it. And he goes to some custom gaming rig company and with their help, he puts together his dream gaming rig. And he takes it home and he boots it up and it's got this monster hum to it that he just loves. It sounds awesome and mean. What a machine, right? And he installs his games on there and he loads up his game and immediately goes into the settings and he turns all the sliders all the way up. Quality, all the way up. View distance, all the way up. Particles, yeah, more, more particles. Texture density, all the way up. Sound rendering, 96 kilohertz, 32-bit floating point. And he's ready to go. And he plays his game and it's just awesome. And he plays for days and he's killing it. His graphics and frame rate are so good, he can aim at anything and blast it out of space before any other players can even see him on the radar. This is one happy guy. His goods minus bads factor is off the charts. For him, this is happiness at its best. But then out of the blue, Coming out from behind him on his left side is another player who sneaks up on him. 
How? What? And he looks over to see that the other player is running a camera while he streams his game. And this guy has four 5K monitors surrounding him in his pilot's chair with his joystick, his throttle arm, his foot pedals, his headset, and his head movement tracking monitors. And the guy says to himself, whoa, now that's power. If I could only get a rig like that, I'd rule the skies. All I want is a rig like that. Now, you may not be a gamer, but be honest. Has not something similar happened to you? Every single early adopter that stands in line and even camps out just to get their hands on the newest phone, all while they're holding the last newest phone in their hands. Right? This one, this new one is just the teeniest much better. Right? There is no limit to happiness. In fact, dissatisfaction is natural to man. Dissatisfaction creates incentive for improvement. If we were all perfectly happy with what we had, no achievement would ever happen. It is the least agreeable people among us, those people who are the hardest to please, who tend to be the ones who build, discover, and achieve the most. As much as they're the biggest pains in the tuchus, that's a fact. Okay, so in the effort to build a foundation for our science of volition, we have to choose a starting point, and this looks like a good one. So we begin with our first postulate. All volitional beings live to pursue happiness. Now remember, a postulate is an unproven assumption that is accepted without that proof. It is not derived from any other statement or premise and does not, because it cannot, employ the use of validity. But it must be true. And testing our postulate for truth is exactly what we'll be doing in the next episode of the Rational Apprentice podcast. All right, Mind Over Murder is next up. All right, I have an unusual topic to cover in this week's Mind Over Murder. It's October, and in keeping with the season, we're gonna be looking at two works on the subject of torture. And in particular, we'll analyze the arguments that the authors are using to try to persuade us to agree with their conclusions. Now, the first piece is from Michael Levin. He's an American philosopher and writer who wrote a Newsweek article, The Case for Torture, back in June of 1982. And the second is by Cesare Bonasana, an Italian criminologist and jurist, in other words, a judge, titled On Crimes and Punishments, and, but this was written way back in 1764. So obviously these two were not contemporaries, so there's no conversation occurring here. And in fact, the authors are not really even in disagreement. Rather, they're discussing two different parts of the topic, but both are relevant, okay? So the first question is, is torture moral or legal as a method to avoid future or in-process crimes? And we'll get into what that means in a, in a second. And the second question is, is torture moral or legal as a punishment device for crimes that have been committed in the past? Now, instead of reading excerpts to, uh, of both pieces to you, that take too long, uh, let me break them down to their essentials. And also keep in mind that these are the words and arguments of the authors, okay? These are not mine. 
All right. On the first question, is torture moral in order to prevent future or in-process crimes? Michael Levin's conclusion is, there are situations in which torture is not merely permissible, but, quote, morally mandatory. Right now, right off the bat, my mind's already at, yikes. But wait, 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 there's much more. Okay. In order to persuade you, he uses this example. All right, suppose a terrorist has hidden a bomb in a highly populated area of New York City, which is pretty much all of New York City. Okay? The bomb will detonate at noon on July 4th unless his demands for money and the release of another terrorist from prison are met. Now, detectives have this guy in custody, but he's steadfast and he's uncooperative, and as we don't know the location of the bomb, searching or evacuating all of New York City it's just not a viable solution. So what do we do? Now, Mr. Levin implies two options. A, we can follow due process and wait for his lawyer to arraign him at the risk of thousands of people dying. Or B, if the only way to save those lives is to subject the terrorists to the most excruciating possible pain, what grounds are there for not doing so? Now, to the question that torturing the terrorist is impermissible by the Constitution, this questions the legality of the question. He responds, yes, but surely saving thousands of lives outweighs constitutionality. Which is an interesting notion, which we've all heard before in various contexts. Now, this is me talking. Were I to employ a constitutionalist view... I would have to point out that nowhere in the Constitution is there a clause that states, this is the law of the land. Unless, of course, there's an emergency, in which case uh, you do whatever you want, right? We've seen this exact situation occur in the U.S. many times over the years, especially in the past 10 years, and in particular in the past three. So I'm personally not impressed with his arguments on the legality of the practice. And we'll hear more on this from Cesare Bonasana later on. Right now, I'm more interested in what he argues regarding the morality of torture. So let's continue. To those who argue that torture is barbaric, Levin responds, yes, but isn't mass murder far more barbaric? Isn't it moral cowardice to let thousands of innocents die in deference to one who flaunts his guilt? In simplified terms, Mr. Levin's conclusion is that torture is justified in extreme cases such as the one he gave in his hypothetical scenario. Now, if you agree with his conclusion, you are accepting his premise that the decision to use torture is a matter of balancing innocent lives against the, albeit, barbaric means required to save them. Right? So using that, as a foundation, Mr. Levin continues by stating, and I'm paraphrasing, situations do not even have to involve extreme cases. There are cases involving more modest numbers that also justify torture. For example, suppose someone plants a bomb on a plane. He alone can disarm the bomb, and either his demands can't be met, or if they can be met, we refuse to set a precedent by yielding to his threats. Again, we have this guy in custody. He's tied up on the beverage trolley. And again, what do we do? Should we tell the 300 or 100 or 10 people who never asked to be put in danger, hey, 
sorry, you're going to have to die in agony because we just couldn't bring ourselves to use torture. So Levin argues, is there really a difference between saving a few innocents and saving a huge number of them when in the balance there's a person who, if not stopped, will terrorize or kill others who didn't ask for nor deserve it? So he's essentially concluding that our morality and courage will cause us to intervene and stop unwarranted attacks on the guiltless. We now have a new premise that torture is not to be used as a punishment for a past crime. Rather, it's an acceptable measure for preventing future evils. Torture, Levin contends, is meant for and should be used to keep innocence from being mortally harmed. Quote, there's an important difference between terrorists and their victims that should mute any talk of terrorists' quote-unquote rights, he says. With the reasoning that if the individual per se is important, it is correspondingly important to protect the rights of the individuals threatened by terrorists. The terrorist victims are at risk, unintentionally, not having asked to be endangered. But the terrorist knowingly initiated his actions. Unlike his victims, he volunteered for the risks of his deed. By threatening to kill for profit or idealism, he renounces civilized standards, and he can have no complaint if civilization tries to thwart him by whatever means necessary. In other words, Levin argues, if life is so valuable, then the lives of innocents must be saved even at the price of hurting or killing the one who endangers them. And by threatening to kill for profit or idealism, the terrorist renounces his own rights and can have no valid complaint if civilization tries to stop him, by any or all means, right? An interesting argument indeed, one that, to my mind, parallels the arguments that can be made for the natural, inalienable right to defend oneself. Now, while Michael Levin spent the preponderance of his time arguing the morality of torture, he did make a point on its legality, albeit, at least to my mind, a weak one. But this is where our second piece comes to play. Cesare Bonasana contends that the use of torture as a practice is not only illegal, but counterproductive and fruitless. Now, before we get into his arguments, I have to point out that the two authors are not discussing, they're not discussing the same scenarios when discussing torture. So this is not a comparison. It's, not, it's, it's apples and oranges here. Where Levin was discussing the use of torture during an ongoing or impending situation, Bonasana, as you'll see, is discussing the use of torture after the fact as a means of punishment for past crimes. Remember, Bonasana was a judge writing back in the 1760s, and I'm not even sure that he really could have even foreseen the possibility of someone having the ability to cause such large-scale destruction. I mean, he most certainly couldn't see a bomb on an airplane, right? Not in 1760. All right, Bonasana bases his arguments really on a singular reason. Quote, either a crime is certain or uncertain, if it is a certainty that a crime was committed, then no other punishment is suitable for it than that affixed to it by law, and torture is useless. A man cannot be called guilty before sentence has been passed on him by a judge or a jury, he says. 
nor can society deprive him of his protection till it has been decided that he has broken the condition upon which it was granted. Now, I would have to agree that within the confines of the historical system of justice we have in the West, certainly we all understand the importance of the concept behind innocent until proven guilty. But I do have a major, and I mean major, problem with something that he says here. When Bonsana states that a proven criminal has broken the condition upon which the protection of his rights were granted, he's implying that it is the state which grants you rights. There are no natural rights, he's saying. Your rights are granted to you by the grace of a benevolent state. And this I have and I will always continue to contend is utter nonsense. But more on that as we continue with The Rational Apprentice. For now, let's continue with Bonasana's arguments. His reasoning is this, and I'll quote him directly. Remember, this is 1760, and it's been translated into English, so it's difficult to read and to understand, but we'll clarify afterwards. All right, quote, to make pain the test of truth, as if the test of it lay in the muscles and sinews of the unfortunate wretch. The law which ordains the use of torture is a law which says to men, resist pain. And if nature has created in you an inextinguishable self-love, if she has given you an inalienable right of self-defense, I create in you a totally contrary affection, namely a heroic self-hatred, and I command you to accuse yourself and to speak the truth between the laceration of your muscles and the dislocation of your bones, unquote. Well, <laughs> wow. Well, what does he mean? Essentially, what he's saying here is, is that any law which makes your ability to withstand pain, the test of innocence or guilt, is really telling you to resist the pain if you can. But if you're unable to withstand it, accuse yourself and confess while being tortured. What is he describing? Trial by fire, right? Bonsana is arguing that the use of torture is fruitless and a false arbiter of truth. If you can stand the pain, you're innocent. But if you can't stand the pain, confess. Well, what does that have to do with truth? Not a lot. The Bonsana's conclusion is that torture as punishment is wrong and doesn't work because the result is a matter of temperament, of calculation, which varies with each man according to his strength and sensibility. A physicist would be a better judge in a case like this, he quips, because a physicist could solve the innocence or guilt equation by simply calculating the solution as if it were a word problem. Given the muscular force and nervous sensibility of an innocent, find the degree of pain which will cause him to plead guilty to a given crime. Okay, now this was an odd subject to be sure, but I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments. What do you think about the morality or the legality of torture? And what do you think about the validity of the arguments used by both authors? Are they persuasive? Okay, more to come next week. And I haven't forgotten about Lizzie Borden, and neither should you. All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. 
Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly Mind Over Murder case notes, you'll need to sign up for the weekly Substack newsletter. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we have studies, practices, courses, and bonus material coming out in the near future. And I know you're going to want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.substack.com to sign up for free right now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.